Good morning, everybody. Really excited to be with you today. Uh, in 1962, a young Air Force corporal named Dick Hoyt was thrilled to welcome his new son into the world. As a first-time parent, many of you have been there. His heart was filled with dreams, aspirations, and hopes about who his son would become and what his son would achieve. Those hopes were dashed, however, when immediately after his birth, his son Rick was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral policy. His son would never walk. His son would never talk. And there was no hope. But in this new father's heart, hope just wouldn't die. Instead, Dick Hoyt threw himself into the life of his son Rick, immersing him in normal boyhood activities. Although his son couldn't move intentionally, he took his son sledding and swimming. He challenged the public school system in his town to include his son and even taught his son how to read, even though he couldn't actually speak. When his son was 10 years old, his dad, Dick Hoyt, formed a partnership with Tufts University in the engineering department there for the first time, actually changed life for people with this disease by inventing a computer that allowed him to talk and to express himself. Believe it or not, the son's first words at 10 years old were not, hi, mom, or hi, dad, but go Bruins. The kid was a sports fan to the core, and nobody had even known it. When he was 15 years old, the son heard about a local charity five-mile race, and he decided that he wanted to be involved. He told his dad in the computer that evening, Dad, can we run in the race together? Well, his dad had never run before, wasn't a runner, wasn't really built like a runner, but he couldn't say no to, to his son and this dream that his son had, so they went out to the race, and Dad pushed son in a wheelchair all five miles, coming in second to last place. Not a great showing. The end of that night through his computer, the son said this to his dad. He said, Dad, when we were running for the first time, I don't feel handicapped. Ever since then, this father-son duo has captured the hearts of millions of people. They, they've run in far more than five-mile races now. They've run marathons. They've run biathlons. They've run triathlons. And they've even run six of the toughest races on earth, the Ironman. Back in 1993, they biked and ran across the entire United States almost 4,000 miles in just 45 days. And even though it's quite obvious that there's only one man doing all the running, they still call themselves Team Hoyt. Now, here's what I want you to see. That kid is never going to get better, okay? No improvement. He can't walk any more than he could 10 years ago. He can't talk any more than he could 10 years ago. Nothing is going to change or improve physically in the next 10 years. And yet I want to su suggest to you that this morning that that picture of Team Hoyt is what the Bible calls hope. Because hope, according to the Bible's definition, is not about the circumstances in front of you. Hope is about who's standing behind you. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 which is our scripture text today, verse 18, that we're going to be digging into. Paul says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It's this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The Republican nomination for president, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Texas Senator Ted Cruz. 
Florida Senator Marco Rubio. He's standing there as well, Dr. Carson. And Donald Trump. And lastly, we welcome back to the debate stage, Donald Trump. But Casey. Can I introduce so Casey in here? Yes, yes. We're going to introduce Ohio Governor John Kasich. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless you've been living under a rock this year, you are well aware that this is a this is a presidential election year in our nation, and somehow that video kind of says it all. I think about where we are in this whole process. When it comes to election years, I have noticed, without a doubt, that there are two kinds of people in this room. Some of you wish all this was over yesterday. You're tired of all the nastiness, tired of all the mudslinging, tired of a news story anytime a candidate sneezes. Who are you if you want to raise your hand and identify yourself? I know there are some of you out there. Be proud, be proud. The other camp in this room... You love this. You get a rush and a buzz off the intellectual debate and the battling and the intensity of an election year. Where are my brothers and sisters? You've watched all the debates. You like this. And, and is your house like this where these two camps of people tend to marry one another? I've noticed that's like just very consistent across the board. Well, as you already picked up on, I'm in Camp B. I love the debates. I love the battling. And I love the intensity of election years. I even love a good rousing stump speech. This process, as sloppy and messy as it is, is the centerpiece of our democracy, and I find it really exhilarating. Here's been my struggle this year. With so many candidates up there, it's been really difficult for me to figure out who to vote for because the issues that they're debating about are over my head. They're just very, very complex. Of course, the main issue on the table for every candidate is the economy, yes? Every candidate has a stump speech about how they're going to create jobs, jobs, jobs. If we just elect them, there are going to be more jobs than citizens to fill them, according to the stump speeches of some of these guys. But they all have really different ways to make that work, really different strategies. Some say we need to end all federal regulations of industry. Some say we need to put money in infrastructure projects by sending lots of federal money back to the states in the forms of grants. Some people say we need to abolish the income tax and have a national sales tax instead. Do you know which economic plan is the best? You know, I studied theology in college, so it's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around these macroeconomics. For heaven's sakes, the federal budget this year is something like $3.7 trillion. I consider it a success if I just remember to pay my cable bill so that the basketball game doesn't turn off in the middle of March Madness. You know, it's just hard for me as a voter to figure out where my vote is going to make the greatest impact on the economy. It's over my head. Second major issue that every candidate is talking about, national security. Each candidate has a strategy for making our nation more safe 
and secure. Again, dramatically different ways of doing that. Some say we should be talking to foreign dictators. Others say, no, you shouldn't do that. Others say we should use foreign aid to leverage our influence around the world. Others say, no, foreign aid just goes down these white rabbit holes. Some say we should have a stronger military presence. Other people say, no, we should have stronger diplomatic savvy. Do you know which one is right? Now, I realize that all kinds of pundits on television and radio make millions of dollars talking about how simple all of these issues are. But I've got to tell you, they strike me as very complicated. And as an ordinary voter trying to parse all this stuff out, it's just difficult for me to figure out how I can turn the knobs on any of that stuff with my vote. And so because the issues facing our country are so complicated, each candidate has developed a wholesale strategy to cut through all the complexity in order to earn our vote. And here's what's remarkable. I promise you're going to agree with me when I get there. It's the same strategy. It's the same strategy. At both parties, every politician of every stripe in the presidential election is giving us the same message. They have different tactics, but the emotional heart of what they're doing is the same. They are running on the same political platform. Do you know what that platform is? Four simple letters, hope. Each candidate must, in order to win, convince us that they are the candidate of hope. It has always been so. Some of you will remember not that long ago when Barack Obama was running for president, he wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. A few years before that, President Bill Clinton was born in the town of Hope, Arkansas. Good night. You know you're born to be a lifelong politician. When you're born in Hope, Arkansas, and he barnstormed the country and unseated an incumbent president, which is hard to do, with this speech that he gave over and over and over. Some of you remember this. The speech was, I still believe in a place called Hope. That just sounds very Clinton-esque. That, wor that worked for him big time. Uh, Ronald Reagan talked about America as the last best hope for the world. Richard Nixon talked about shaping the future in the image of our hope, even going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. He talked about our hope rests in liberty for the entire world. Hope, it's, it's on their campaign slogans, it's on their t-shirts, it's on their websites. Just vote for me, each candidate is saying, and I will move into the White House and I will engineer for you hope. Several years ago, you may remember the State of the Union address by President George W. Bush. This was the time when the economy was tanking and we were neck deep in the mortgage crisis, and President Bush had rolled out a new program that he was introducing to the country in this State of the Union address. And he said in that speech to all Americans who are underwater on your mortgage and unable to make the payment, I want you to pick up the phone tonight and dial this number, 1-800-955, you guessed it, HOPE. The problem is that President Bush misread the teleprompter and gave out the wrong number to the entire country. So I hope you'll let me pick on these guys a little bit. Can we agree on this? Yes, I want you to be engaged in the political process. Your vote does matter. It's a part of your civic duty. I believe it's also part of our Christian responsibility. But if you think you're going to get on the phone and dial up Clinton, Sanders, Trump, Cruz, or Kasich, and they're going to give to you hope, I think you're dialing the wrong number. Can we agree on that? All right. That's my stump speech. Now, why am I ranting and raving about this? It's not because we shouldn't care. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 in the New Testament commands Christians to pray for kings 
and all those in authority. Our president, sort of the ancient equivalent to a king in the first century. And it's not that a president cannot enact hopeful policies. I think when you look backward in American history, you do see some great figures, some great presidents who were able to chart a course of hope for we as a people. I simply want to suggest to you that the definition of hope that they're all running on is not the Bible's definition of hope. And when we mistake those two, we project a bunch of stuff onto God, which is really toxic and unhealthy because what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you think. And of course, we all believe God is a God of hope. We're reading a scripture today talking about the fact that God has called us to hope. We have to be careful. I believe this matters very deeply and dramatically not to mix up the politician's version of hope with the Bible's definition of hope. What's the hope that they're selling? It's just this, simply defined. Every presidential candidate running on the same platform, and it's this. Hope equals your life will be better tomorrow. That's what they're running. Hope equals your life will be better tomorrow. Vote for me, and I'm going to enact a bunch of policies and lead in such a way so that your life, wherever you are in America, is going to be better tomorrow. Of course that message sells. Of course that works. Of course they're trying to convince us of that. That message sells like peanuts in the Braves game because all kinds of people are looking for that kind of hope. And what's interesting is that in this moment in our culture, I think what we've realized is those pockets, those buckets that we have traditionally looked to to fill up our, our hope meter, th those buckets are increasingly empty and questionable. There was a time when we could assume that hope was found, financial hope, in the stock market, that you could invest in the stock market and it would create a better tomorrow for you financially. But now, we're not so sure. It's up and down. It's questionable. There was a time when we could put our hope in the housing market to inevitably increase our net worth. Well, now, that's all up for grabs. It's questionable. There was a time when we could put some hope, I think, in our national security to keep us safe from external threats. 9-11 happened. Now we're not so sure. There was a time when we could always hope in the job market to create more opportunities for us for a better tomorrow. Now all that stuff is up for grabs. And what about you personally? When you've staked your hope in your physical health and always taken care of yourself and then suddenly you get the surprise diagnosis. What about you when you have put such hope in your job skills and in your work ethic and your value to your company, your organization, and suddenly your pink slip and you're unemployed? What about you when you put your purest of hopes in a marriage that you had so, so much hope for only to see the marriage fail? What about you when in the words of Bono from U2, hope and history don't rhyme? When everywhere you look for a hope or a better tomorrow, it seems questionable, up for grabs, and up in the air. And some of you know exactly what's going to happen right now because you watch the preachers on TV. And you think right now this is the part of the sermon where I stand up tall and I grin at you just like those TV preachers and my voice gets a little quivery, you know, like them. And I take my Bible and wave it around at you and I say things like, you may not be able to look to the stock market for hope or to the White House for hope, or to the job market for hope. But you can always look to God 
for hope and a better tomorrow. And God always delivers for you because you're a child of royalty. You're a child of the king. And in this better tomorrow that God has laid out for you, you're going to be prosperous. And what you're going to be driving a Cadillac. You're going to have nicer clothes. Your teeth are going to be 20% whiter in this future that God has. Your spouse is going to be 50% better looking if you will just lean into God's hope. Just put your hope in God, I'm supposed to say right now, and he will always give to you a better tomorrow. But where do we get that nonsense? That that's how God acts. Some kind of vending machine like a politician who just has all these one-liners about how life's always going to be better tomorrow. Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 23, If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Boy, in a world that knew what crucifixion is all about, that surely doesn't sound like the kind of hope the politicians are selling. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 13, All men will hate you because of me. How do I not get on that team? That's not like the Christianity that I signed up for, but Jesus said it. Jesus' own brother, James, in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he said this to Christians, to a Christian community. He said, listen, those of you who say we're going to go into this city or that city tomorrow, carry on business and make money, James says, look, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. James says, God hasn't guaranteed you some kind of perfect tomorrow. You may get hit by a Mack truck tomorrow. You don't know. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And, and, and I get the hopefulness of that scripture. I'm thankful that Jesus has overcome and that Jesus reigns victorious, but he didn't say that his overcoming power meant the trouble would go away. Not at all. He said the trouble is still there. I hope you see what I'm trying to do with you all this morning. I'm trying to get you to re-engineer your definition of hope. Hope is not about what will happen circumstantially in front of you. Hope is about who's standing, who's pushing behind you. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we're going to jump into again, chapter 1, verse 18. This letter is really a product of Paul's own blood, sweat, and tears. I think it's a, it's a passionate and emotional letter. And this is because Paul spent upwards of five years in Ephesus carving this church out. How long has Canton Church been around, Jeremy? Four, four years now? So think a little more than that. Think about yourself in terms of the, 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 the age, the lifespan of this church at Ephesus. And Paul moved to Ephesus to do this. Some of the other letters of the New Testament, if you've ever read through it before, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 documents in the New Testament, and often he's writing to people he's never met. Romans is the most famous letter of Paul. And Paul had never even visited the church of Rome. He doesn't know these people. He's communicating from afar. Paul moved into Ephesus. He started a business in Ephesus. He won the first converts to Christianity in the entire what was then called the Roman province of Asia in Ephesus. And it's interesting, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul calls this church in Ephesus, he uses this line, he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. He calls this first church of Ephesus a community committed to hope. Committed to hope. So imagine you're one of those first century Ephesian believers. And historians would suggest there are probably about the same number of Ephesian Christians by the time Paul writes this letter as there are number of bodies in this room. So look around. This is the, the whole church that has developed 
because of Paul's church planning efforts and because of Paul's leadership. Your life has been dramatically changed by Paul the Apostle. Dramatically changed. I, I, I think we anachronistically, if I can use a big word, read the Bible sometimes, and we sort of assume that life in the ancient Roman Empire is kind of like life here. Listen, we have it made. We are all, even if you're not a Christian, you're the beneficiary of a nation that has largely turned to Christianity for its moral values. So you can be a non-Christian here and live a really great life. The ancient world is not like that. It's a cruel, dark place, especially the town of Ephesus, huge ancient city. And imagine you're one of the believers whose life has been radically turned around by the message of God's love in Jesus. And you, you suddenly have healthy relationships. You suddenly have direction for your family. You suddenly have eternal security. Uh, you suddenly don't have to fear evil spirits, which everybody was afraid of evil, evil demons and evil spirits in the ancient world. You suddenly have a community of faith who loves you, who nurtures you, where you can use your gift. Your life's been radically altered, and that's because of Paul. And now Paul has been gone for years, ministering in other cities of the Roman Empire, and he sends back a letter, a letter that we call Ephesians. For them, it was just a letter from Paul. And I can imagine the excitement of this Christian community as they gathered in, in some home somewhere or some room, and one of the few people who could read in that Christian community stood up and read the letter of their founder read the letter from the one who had led each of them to Christ. How emotional that must have been. I mean, I imagine people wept at certain parts of this letter. And I'm so fascinated by verse 18. Because in this verse, in this letter that would have been publicly read to this Christian community, Paul tells them, I've been praying for you. I, every day, I've been praying for you. Paul says, even as I write this letter, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And Paul wants them to know that he's been praying something really specific for them passionately specific, okay? This is not like when you, when you have a problem and you tell your buddy to pray for you and he says, okay, and forgets about it five minutes later. There's a lot more to it than that. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm praying specifically for you, Ephesian church. And what is Paul praying? A couple things. I pray also, first Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That, that's a strange phrase in English, but actually people who wrote in ancient Greek use this phrase from time to time. It appears in the Bible. It also appears outside the Bible. And this phrase, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, simply, simply means to grasp firmly and rightly. Pa Paul's saying, I want you to really, truly comprehend and understand what I'm about to tell you. I want your knowledge, your grasp of the subject that we're about to talk about to exceed a surface and shallow level, but I want your interpretation of this subject to plumb the depths of the worthiness of the subject. Does that make sense? Paul's saying he's, he's using the, the linguistic tools at his disposal to kind of get in the face of these Ephesian believers and to say, I want you to go deeper. I, I want you to, I really want you to grasp. With all my heart, I want you to grasp with all your heart what I'm about to tell you. What is it that Paul wants them to grasp? Two specific things. First, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you. So Paul says, first, I want you to really understand that you've been called to hope. This is muscular. This is intense. Paul says you've been called. That means God has commanded you to hope. It's not a negotiable. It's not an optional thing for Christian people. Paul says, I, I want you to grasp rightly that God demands that you hope. 
It's not an option. You must do it. Now, all these politicians right now have all kinds of hope language that they're throwing at us. But I've got news for you. Not one of them, even a sitting president, would have the audacity to point his or her finger in the camera or at a crowd and to say, I command you to hope. I'm the president or I'm running for president and I demand that you hope. That, that would be preposterous. But here, Paul says that for Christian people, he wants them to grasp that God has commanded hope. This is a big deal and it's not an option. That, that Greek word for called, it's kaleo, and we actually get the word for church from that same root word, kaleo, ekklesia. It's the same it's the same one because church literally means the called ones. And here, Paul says the church is a community of people who've been called to hope. And so the $64,000 question, the tip of the spear, is simply called to hope in what? And finally, Paul tells us in the last phrase of the verse, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What scripture so audaciously calls me to hope in is not that I will always have a better tomorrow. That is not promised to me anywhere in the Bible. What scripture calls me to hope in is that I'm a part of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, the message of the gospel, the reason we're all sitting in this room right now, the reason Canton Church exists, the message of this whole Bible cover to cover is the message of a God who for all of eternity was longing for an inheritance of his people. And for God to receive that inheritance, someone had to die in God's own family so that he could receive that same inheritance. And so as scripture tells us in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him could be a part of God's glorious inheritance. The ultimate hope to which I am called is to believe the crazy gospel, the crazy reality of God's love that tells me through Jesus' death and resurrection, I am most cherished to God. I'm a part of what God loves most. I'm God's reward. I'm a part of God's glorious inheritance. Do you see the difference between that kind of hope and a hope that is committed and rests only on the whims of circumstance? Is it that, that brand of hope tells me that I'm not hoping over anything that might or might not happen in the future, but my hope is built on something more solid than that, more concrete than that. My hope is built on a historical reality that took place 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday. This kind of hope tells me that if a country music song happens to me tomorrow, if my dog dies and my wife leaves me and my boss fires me and my house burns down, I don't have any less reason to hope that I did before the crisis. If, if I lose a loved one, I'm still a part of God's glorious inheritance. If I lose my job tomorrow, I, I'm still a part of God's glorious inheritance. If the, if the bank forecloses on my house, I'm still a part of God's glorious inheritance because in Scripture, hope is not about the circumstances that happen in front of you. Hope is about who's standing behind you. I have hope that is not based on anything that may or may not happen tomorrow or any other time in the future. I have hope because I believe with all my heart that behind me I have a heavenly Father with, with legs of iron and a heart that beats with love and passion for my life and for yours. And 
able to comprehend the infinite love of God for us personally, everything about our lives would be different. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? And I don't mean to be melodramatic, but can you sequester yourself alone in your head and in your heart during this time of prayer? Because I don't want to rush it. And you may be here trying to figure church out for the first time ever, the first time in a while. But it would be a shame for you to equate reconnecting with church at some level to reconnecting with God. And maybe God has led you here to reveal to you His heart of love for you, the true hope that you can have through Jesus Christ. And if you need to commit or recommit your life to Him and begin the journey of being carried by Him, you can do that this morning by praying a prayer like this. God, I need you in my life. I haven't had you in my life for whatever reason, but I invite you to forgive my sin and to begin to walk with you. Begin to be my Lord and Master. I want to run with you, God. I want to run not alone, but I want to run with you. And so, God, we, all of us, turn to you now so grateful for the hope that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that this week we celebrate the ultimate pinnacle of that hope in your death and in your resurrection. Thank you that you did go all out for us that Friday, which we call good. Thank you that when we are unable and when our lives are disheveled and out of focus, you carry us. God, open our eyes to the many ways that day by day by day you carry us and allow us to put our ultimate unshakable hope in your good character.